Dr. Robert Groves, your host for the Groves Connection podcast. The Groves Connection brings you intimate conversations with pundits, providers, patients, leaders, and laypeople, all to help us understand a contradiction. How can our healthcare system be both magnificent and yet so deeply flawed? We're going inside healthcare to talk candidly with those who know. What they have to say may delight, surprise, frustrate, or at times even anger you. But I invite you to get curious and listen to the truth about healthcare and those who want to fix it. Maybe the answers have been there all along. We just need to make the connection. Are you ready to connect? Ryan Campbell, welcome to the Groves Connection. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm really fascinated by your story, and this is a little different than than uh, some of the other podcasts I've done, but I can't wait to get into this. But uh, as is my habit, I'm curious about background. So uh, can you uh, can you take us back to uh, where you grew up and what your life was like? And and I, I don't know, uh, uh, you're, are you Australian or is that right? Well, I'm based in Nashville in Tennessee. And okay, yeah. I try and convince people I'm from West Texas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's my main purpose in life these days. But now I am an Aussie and uh, yeah, yeah. moved to the US five years ago, moved to Tennessee and in pursuit of, of the business and everything that we now do in the US. And um, yeah, but Aussie born and bred and uh, grew up in a small beach town in Australia and just a normal Aussie family. My dad was a, a truck driver and a farmer and mum was a stay-at-home mum and uh, I was youngest of three boys. We were just kind of that typical middle-class family. Went to a, the same school for 13 years of my education from kindergarten through to year 12 and my graduating class had 26 people. So, you know, we were in kind of rural coastal Australia. Yeah. Honestly, the most incredible upbringing, the most incredible parents most incredible family. Um, we were given just enough. We were made to work for what we had just enough. And it was yes, just yes. a beautiful balance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm struck by how, uh, in many circumstances, I think it's the, the, uh, the, the spin that we put on things in retrospect is critically important. And I'm reminded of, uh, uh, how important it is to put our stories together of our past in a coherent manner it's just, it's almost as if that's the scaffolding on which we build the rest of our lives uh, and without that it can get a little chaotic but uh, it, talk to me about uh, what kinds of things were on your mind then were you thinking about a career were you thinking about you know what you were going to do when you grew up uh, or thinking about going to uh, additional school how was your mindset at uh, elementary school. <laughs> I definitely wasn't thinking about going to additional school. I can tell you that. <laughs> I wasn't the biggest fan of school, but um, I was a big fan of aviation. Gotcha. And okay. I discovered my passion incredibly early in my life. And then that kind of fueled all the adventures, the good and the bad. And I was actually six years old. We jumped on a Boeing 737 in Sydney. And it was the very first time any of my family had ever been out of Australia and therefore overseas. So uh, we all flew to a place called Vanuatu in the middle of the Pacific, a small island. And this was just prior, I am aging myself, but it was just prior to September 11. And yes. that meant that 
with it from a security point of view, we were invited during that flight to walk up that uh, aisle and actually go through the cockpit door. So we met the pilots, they turned around, they oh talked to the young boys yeah. and that was it. I was sold, mate. Every, I just, every day from that point on, I wanted to be a jumbo jet pilot. I wanted to grow up to, you know, learn to fly airplanes. And I just lived and breathed anything to do with a flying machine. So, so take us through, uh, you know, what was your, what was your first job? Was it in aviation? Or was that always sort of the hobby on the side? How did that come together for you? Yeah. So I, through a demand of wanting things, I had to get a job. That's <laughs> all I wanted was a Fender Telecaster. And I remember putting this guitar on lay-by and uh, my cousin did exactly the same thing. We're the same age. And we both went out and got after school jobs and we both paid off the the lay-by, probably three quarters of it. And then our mum and dad paid the rest. That was that yeah. kind of reward and hard work thing. And once I had that guitar, I had a bit of spare money. I was earning $45 a week and I was, I was rich. So that's when I started to go down the road of flight training. I was 14 years old, working weekend jobs, after school jobs. And every two weeks I'd take a flying lesson. Yeah, That was the best part of my life. I, if I wasn't in the airplane learning to fly, I was reading about flying or I was watching videos about flying yeah. or that was my passion and the performance that came as a result of um, you know, the fuel that is a passion was was pretty incredible. I was 14 years old learning to fly. I flew an airplane uh, for the first time the day that I turned 15, uh, my 15th birthday. So the first was day- Was that a I, solo now? That was a solo flight? A solo flight, 15th birthday. Wow. So first day I was legally allowed. I was let loose in an airplane and 16 years old, I was flying passengers around and 17, I had a private pilot's license. 18, I had a commercial pilot's license. So- wow. It was everything. I was I was broke, but I was happy. Yeah, yeah. So when you say you had a commercial pilot's license, what what size airplanes were you flying at that point? What, was it? Uh... Uh, I mean, to start off, once I had a commercial pilot's license, that was basically just the approval to earn money as a pilot. So I started off gotcha. flying scenic flights, and I would fly up and down the coast of Australia and take passengers flying. And it was a very poorly paid job, but I tell you what, it was a good job. So yeah, <laughs> as you know. I, my life took a unique turn when I was 17 and yes, yes, yes. decided to embark on a an adventure of my own, an expedition. And, and what did your parents uh, say about this? Uh... <laughs> well, to be honest, for the first few months, they didn't say anything because they didn't tell them. So uh, for the <laughs> listeners at home, I had a desire to become the youngest person and first teenager in history to have ever flown an airplane solo around the world, tiny single engine airplane. And uh, I knew a kid who did it at 23. Prior to that, the world record was 37. Like more people had been to space and flown solo around the world. I had no money, but I was like, this is just, it epitomizes adventure. It epitomizes living yeah. to break one of the few remaining records within aviation. So I actually Googled how to fly solo around the world. And I actually, from the secrecy of my bedroom, gathered some support from some very famous Australian names prior to telling my parents. And once this started to gather traction and a little bit more momentum than I first thought, I was like, oh my gosh, now I have to ask my parents. So I dried the dishes one night. My dad was next to me washing the dishes. Mum was sitting at the kitchen table. And I'll never forget asking the question. I was so incredibly nervous, mainly because I'd been planning this in secret and I received some kind of supportive parental answer. Oh, that'd be a lot of fun. You'd see some amazing things. But then I sat down at the kitchen table and placed a folder of emails in front of them. And they started to read the emails that I'd been gathering. One email specifically from a very famous Australian man. And all of a sudden they went, oh, this is this is a bigger deal. This is not this just is real. Yeah. And good gosh, like my parents that night jumped on board two feet first into a big black hole. None of us had any idea really? what we were getting 
sells in. Yeah, they're like, yep, we th- we think this is cool. We'll support wow. you. If you want to do it, we'll support you. It started two years of planning and training and preparing and fundraising. And I had to learn to fly at night and learn to fly in cloud. And we had to build a team and we had to uh, just everything, everything from building a website to gathering sponsors. You know, we, we raised a quarter of a million dollars on a laptop computer as a normal Aussie family. So really grassroots yeah. preparation, like grinding it out to make it work. We, we are just as proud, if not more proud of the two years of planning than we are of the actual yeah. round the world flight. Itself. I, I want to get into that just a little bit deeper uh, so that, uh, yeah, for listeners and for me, so that I understand what's involved in the comp- complexity of flying a small airplane around the world. And at some point, you're going to have to hop some oceans, right? Uh, and you've got to know what your range is and, and where you're going to refuel. How, you know, what was the, the, the trickiest part of that planning and, and how many stops did you have to make in that, in that journey? So we, it was an eastbound flight around the world from the Sydney area in Australia. Uh, 35 stops, 15 countries, 24,000 nautical miles. So the shortest leg on the trip was 20 minutes, uh, a short hop in Wisconsin. The longest leg was Hawaii to California, 2,150 miles, 15 hours nonstop in a single engine airplane, a thousand miles from dry land at the midpoint of that leg in any direction. And I, this is my point where I always say, I'm not recommending you do this. <laughs> this, <Yeah>. was, <laughs> this was, yeah, this yeah, was that a one sounds and done pretty thing scary. Sure. I didn't know a, a, a single engine aircraft could could fly that far without refueling. So we actually modified the aeroplane. So ah, we, okay. a single engine aeroplane, if there's any uh, listeners out there involved in aviation, it's called a Cirrus SR-22. You can look it up online and it's a four seat piston powered uh, propeller driven aeroplane. It's designed to fly for about five or six hours before it runs out of fuel. That's its limit. So what we did was obviously, as you mentioned, that's not enough to cross the ocean. So we took yeah, the back seat out of the aeroplane and we installed 160 gallons of fuel in a bladder tank, so a soft bag, in the back of the aeroplane. And all of a sudden, we're a flying fuel tank and we can fly for 17 hours nonstop without refueling. About 17 hours, a little less than 17 hours. It was hard to measure, but we had long-distance radio equipment, so uh, a HF radio, terrible, terrible quality radio, to talk to air traffic control from the middle of nowhere. Uh, we had ditch bags and we had life rafts and we had emergency pumps and everything for the fuel system. You know, it's still not an airliner flying at, you know, 36,000 feet with a drinks trolley. How high were you flying? That's a great question too. At what altitude did you fly typically? We averaged 9,000 feet. So most legs were 9,000 feet. And that brings kind of a whole set of problems. That's in the middle of the weather. Well, and and they, the forecasts or the, you know, these, these kind of over ocean weather forecasts are not designed for people flying around at 9,000 feet because yeah. any smart person is not flying around at 9,000 feet. They're all up at, you know, flight levels with the airliners. So we we had to kind of work around that. We had a lot of mentors, a lot of incredible people on an incredible team that lent a helping hand and shared wisdom and offered advice. And, and you know, the goal wasn't to do this the quickest. It wasn't to do this with the most media attention or whatever. It was to do it safely. Yeah, and yeah. I often say we took off, we landed and we did this and we did that. And it confuses people when we deliver yeah. a keynote weren't you the only person in the airplane and that's the perfect moment to talk about the power of the team so yeah yeah so uh so and you accomplished this feat and when was this what year was this that you uh, made it this was, happen? 
I took off on that round the world flight 10 years ago this month. Hey connectors, this is Alden from the Editing Bay. I just wanted to point out this episode was recorded in June 2023. So the date that Ryan is talking about is actually June 30th, 2013. Let's get back to the show. 70 days to go all the way around the world. We flew one day, stopped one day. We went from Sydney uh, for people interested in the route, island topped across the Pacific into the West Coast of the US across the US up into Canada. Uh, we got ready for the crossing of the North Atlantic, which was a really big uh, deal. So we flew over the tip of uh, Greenland from Canada into Iceland, down to Scotland, England, France, Greece, had a diversion, meant to end up in Egypt, flew around Iraq airspace, descended over the Red Sea, ended up in Jordan, uh, flew nine hours over Saudi Arabia to Oman, then down to Sri Lanka and across to Malaysia, Indonesia, and then back into the West Coast of Australia. So finally- Unbelievable. So yeah, crazy, a big trip. Yeah, crazy is the, is the word there. <laughs> uh, at, were, were you, at any point in, the, in that journey, did you say to yourself, what the heck am I doing? Uh, why did I embark on this? Uh, you know, was there fear? I mean, uh, talk to us a little bit about the emotion of the, the journey. The media and, and everyone, they're always just interested in the scary moments, right? So they always- Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. did you ever think you're in trouble? You know, and we, we had a 60,000 foot thunderstorm over the Pacific. We had airframe icing over the North Atlantic. We had crisis yeah. in Egypt. We had uh, airspace issues in Indonesia. So yes, yeah, so we had those moments, but from a, a mental health point of view, I think I landed in Greece, a Greek island called Rhodos, and a lady started to talk to me in broken English, and she was not happy that I was there, and we'd been so focused on the next destination. She started to get angry. She put me in a car, and, and I handed her all the paperwork. She took me to an office, and she really kind of got into yeah, into me, and little did I realize, I mean, we had 10,000 US dollars of bribery cash hidden in that airplane, yet we... I never put two and two together that maybe that's what you wanted. I didn't imagine that that would happen in Greece. And yeah, I had a translator come in. We we spoke with this lady and uh, we actually, she wanted me to leave and we hid the airplane behind a building for 72 hours. And we came out three days later and she was on the afternoon shift and we left in the morning, right? So we kind of hid away from this lady. And yeah. it was at that point in time, kind of the beginning of not just that mess, but the beginning of a really hard section of the world everywhere from that point back to Australia was, was going to be challenging. And that's when I realized what pressure I had put on so many other people. You know, they say adventure is a selfish thing and, and ultimately that is correct. And yeah. that was at that point, I was like, oh gosh, I just want this to go well. And it would be unfair to not ask you, were there also moments of sheer joy as you were doing this journey or was it all pretty much business incredible man you know i watched the whole world you know you know coral atolls in the pacific and lava spewing into the water in, at, at hawaii and and we watched you know sunrises and sunsets all over the world <laughs> we saw icebergs and deserts and the alps and i looked down on indian fishing boats at night and you name it it was just wild and, and in some ways that was actually hard because i didn't have anyone to share it with i had my life yeah, yeah. which i named bob's yeah. Unless I'm talking to Bob, you know, I, it was very hard to get other people to to realize what you had experienced, and yeah. sharing something was actually kind of tough, to be honest. But uh, we are about relationships, aren't we? I mean, it's it's that's yeah. a that's a good reminder that experiences are meant to be shared, you know, with other human beings. I think that's very cool. Okay, so uh, your life changed after that. I'm sure you were a, a celebrity of sorts, uh, if not. Uh, a big celebrity, particularly in Australia. Uh, did you were you running around the country or the world then talking about your adventure? Or it was incredible. It, it was it was unreal. I mean, 
I landed and we broke some world records and I was the youngest person, first teenager in history to fly airplanes solo around the world. And you can see on the call that a Guinness world record on the wall. And, but to be honest, the world record didn't matter. I didn't care about it. Mum was the one who kind of forced me to submit the paperwork and make it official. What (laughs) mattered was the impact we had from six year old kids all the way through to ex world war two spitfire pilots. Like we had made a difference. There was this impact that was pretty incredible. So we signed a book deal and wrote a book called Born to Fly and that went out there, which was the story of the round of a fly. And so that helped me share, you know, the experience. And then I was invited to go and speak to different organizations. So I rocked up, told my story, they paid me. It was just a great little deal. And um, I met famous people. I shook the hand of Buzz Aldrin, a man who walked on the moon. I was invited to meet the Royals. I had a meeting and kind of met with Prince William and talked about aviation and adventure with him. And then at a later date, I met with Prince Harry and oh my talked about flying. Like I was invited to go to the Australian Museum, which is actually where I met Buzz Aldrin. And somehow was named one of Australia's 50 greatest explorers. And there are only 21 who are still with us. And that for me was, it's hard sometimes to realize if you've done something of significance. And, and that was a moment for me to go, wow, like even though I don't feel like I deserve to be on that list, I am on that list and I'm yeah. proud of it. Yeah. So that was a, a massive highlight. So yes, my life was was pretty incredible. But, but beyond all of that, I was just a normal Aussie kid who still was kind of in love with flying. So I actually, you talk about this dream of becoming a jumbo jet pilot. I'd had that dream since I was six years old. I was still flying for a living. I actually turned down a job with Qantas, which was my dream airline. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. To fly vintage airplanes. I was still a young guy. Uh-huh. I was 20. And I thought, you know what? I'm not ready to go and drive the bus yet. I want to go and fly older aircraft and I want to continue to build my experience as a pilot. And, yeah, yeah. and ultimately that led to that that day that changed everything. And so how long a period was that when you were basking in the in the glow of a huge accomplishment? Every reason to be proud, an amazing feat. About two years and three months. Okay. So okay. lots of adventure and took another job flying and kind of really continued to kind of live my life and and start to look towards the next thing so yeah two years and three yeah so so now i want you to to uh if you would walk us through that day or night i'm not sure what time of day it was and what you were thinking and and uh and then what happened there was a day that changed everything for me and it it is tough i've never delivered a keynote not struggled and it's raw and it's real so uh just two years after the end of the round the world flight, I took a job flying warbirds or vintage aeroplanes. And uh, my job was to fly a open cockpit biplane that was built in the 1930s up and down the coast of Australia. So I'd fly up the beach with one person aboard the aeroplane at a time. So it was two of us on board. We'd fly up the beach. And if they wanted, at the end of it, if they were adventurous, we'd uh, go upside down. So that was my job. Now, 28th of December... 2015, so seven and a half years ago, it was uh, a normal day at work. I met the gentleman who was flying with me first and incredibly nice guy, some aviation experience. We talked about flying Uh, this airplane that we were uh, about to ride in was just beautiful. It was a piece of art and bright yellow biplane. And after talking, we went and climbed in the airplane. I helped him strap in. I started the airplane. So this was so old, uh, this this aircraft, that to start it, you actually grabbed hold of the propeller with your hand and you flicked it. And oh my gosh. 
it would it would start up. And this morning, it was actually the nicest this aeroplane had started for me. It was just beautiful. It purred to life, and uh, sometimes they can be a bit temperamental. So it started beautifully. I pulled the chops from the aeroplane. Um, I said goodbye to his daughter. I said, oh, you know, we won't be long. And we went and climbed in the aeroplane, taxied to the end of the runway, and turned around. We lined up with the runway. It was the cross strip, so a grass airstrip. And I pushed the throttle forward and took off. And no records to break, no oceans to cross, any of that stuff. The aeroplane became airborne. We climbed past the end of the runway. The end of the runway disappeared beneath the nose of the aeroplane. Uh, we lost power. So we had an engine failure. And I pushed the nose down and did everything I could in, in my experience. And I was a reasonably experienced young pilot at this point to basically get to the best outcome that we possibly could. Um, but it wasn't enough. And what resulted uh, was a horrific accident and and brutal, really brutal. It really is tough. I can hear it in your voice even now. I mean, you're reliving this, yeah. It's easy to tell an easy story. It's hard to tell a hard story. Yeah. Um, but the hard stories are where the, the goods come from, you know. So severe plane crash, um, so much so that I was cut from the wreckage, placed in a helicopter, flown to hospital as the only survivor. So... That's the uh, the kicker in all of this is, you know, I had five breaks in my back, shattered facial bones, uh, shattered right ankle, broken talus, almost removed right ankle, cuts and bruises, heads to toe, uh, head to toe, uh, right orbital fracture, all titanium placed in my back, my my right ankle reconstructed. Mm-hmm. I shut down and was uh, rebooted, and then I was sent across to uh, ICU. I spent some time in ICU. And then woke up sometime later in a recovery ward and days had now passed. That's when we realized or when I realized that I had a spinal cord injury and Mm. I was diagnosed a complete paraplegic. So L1 down, no movement, no feeling, um, all the things that come with a spinal cord injury. But the hardest part about all of this was not that list of of kind of problems or injuries, but the fact that I was the lucky one in, in all of this scenario and and that started me down on what was a very, very uh, tough masterclass in mental health, in mindset, mm-hmm. in resilience. And yeah, it was it was the lowest point of my life. And I, I hope it remains as the lowest point of my life. I hope it's <laughs> worse than that. And yeah, six months in hospital, in spinal rehabilitation, or a year and a half in rehabilitation as a whole, and a really long journey back to, to where we are today. Well, I can't even imagine, especially at a, uh, still a young man. I mean, you're a young man with your whole life before you and, and to be faced with not only dealing with the aftermath of what had happened, and, uh, but then to, to be left to deal with the physical, uh, aspects of that. And, and, the data is pretty clear that we all, uh, to some extent, have a set level of happiness. It's not that it's not movable, but for the most part, we, te- we tend to have a set level of happiness. And whether you win the lottery or uh, become paraplegic, if you make it through that, you get back to basically where you were before. What amazes me time after time, and, and I practice as a critical care doc for decades, if you take one set of circumstances in two different people, the outcomes can be very, very different. And it's based on the way that they approach it. It really is. And I've watched that time after time. That That's the masterclass on, on mental health that I went through. It wasn't, 
oh, you have a sore back or you learn to walk again. And I, I had a miraculous recovery from a spinal cord injury, still lots wrong, but miraculous. But it wasn't that it was, it was being in a room, in a ward living with the amazing healthcare professionals that saved all of us, but being with the other patients, watching a quadriplegic who had lost both his arms and become a quadriplegic, no movement or feeling from the chest down, have a better mindset, a better mindset than an incomplete paraplegic who learned to walk again. Yeah. Won the lottery when it came to a spinal cord injury recovery. That for me was just a, wait a second, there is far more to this, to overall happiness and satisfaction in life and, and to maintaining positive mental health. We were watching people go down the slippery slope to ultimately suicide and, and go down the road yeah. of just losing the will to live. And then we're looking at other people who thrive in the face of adversity. And then I just become so enamored by it, so interested in it, mainly because I had to understand my own mind. Right. Because that was what was going to determine how I ended up as a person and the rest of my life, quality of life. But then it became bigger than that. It was like, wait a second. The more I tell my bad story or struggle of a story, the more people show up and are willing to open up to me about their struggles. And now I'm seeing that everyone goes through adversity. It is a byproduct of breathing. So there should be nothing yes. more important in life than, you know, focusing on the ways that we can be better, the, the ways that we can look after ourselves and, you know, and ultimately get to that point of happiness, whatever it is, you know, that's the whole point of life, isn't it? Yes, yes. The mind is an incredible thing. Le learning to walk for me was not a physical challenge. It was a mental challenge. Yeah. Interesting. So, so I, I, I love what you're, you're, uh, you're saying about this, and it certainly is consistent with, with my experience. Um, can you give us a timeline of, uh, you know, was there a point at which you said, okay, enough of this, I'm going to focus on the positives and I'm going to get to work. Uh, you know, walk us through how that evolved for you and, and over what period of time and, and, and what happened next? Yes. I mean, nurses and we mentioned this before we started recording nurses at the top of my tree i just think you know it's it's no disrespect to doctors amazing what you guys did for me behind the scenes were incredible but the people who showed up to my bedside yes helped me get dressed who I'll, i have to tell this story i remember going to bed one night and a nurse you know said okay close the curtains good night see you tomorrow and i woke up got back in the wheelchair went out to eat the next morning and that same nurse is still there and i said to gosh i was like you need to go home like you need to sleep yeah, yeah, yeah. she just smiled she said i've already been home and she had finished a shift gone back to her life had her break slept got up and she was back ready to look after us and i was just like that is the ultimate level of care and when you're at that point in your life i know that as a medical professional you see a lot of people come through those doors and leave those doors in different, you know, varying levels of success or, or whatever. But from a patient's point of view, there's only one person at that point. And therefore you as a team have so much impact on each individual person. So it was incredible to be in hospital, to be supported by the healthcare professionals that were around me that began as just a patient lying in a bed. And, and every two hours the nurses would come in and roll me over to prevent bed sores and then they started to lift me off the mattress in a sling and they would leave me in the sling until the, the, the pain was too much. They put me back in the bed, but every day I was hanging there for a little bit longer and I was getting stronger and, and, and fitter. And it would become every day, multiple sessions in the rehabilitation gym, a session in the hydrotherapy pool, uh, patient education sessions to learn how to live with a spinal cord injury and all yeah. the, the loss of bowel and, and bladder and all that stuff that you just don't know about when you go into this situation in your life. 
um, but one session per week with a psychologist. Good. 14, 15, 16 sessions a week on your physical health and one on your mental health. It was the most ridiculous imbalance. Upside down. It was just so yeah. wrong. It was it was so frustrating. So yeah. I was in a dark place. I was struggling. I remember a day they took me into the rehabilitation gym. It was actually the first time they ever took me in there in the wheelchair and they laid me down on a bed and they told me that my first challenge was going to be learning to roll over. So I'm like, okay. I wasn't one to shy away from a challenge. Didn't really think that this is where I would end up, but I came up with a plan. So I picked up one of my legs. I crossed my legs. I grabbed the bed and I pulled, but I had five breaks in my back. The pain from surgery was pretty immense and I'm pretty tough, but I stopped yeah. on my side and I lay on that bed resting, waiting for the pain to go away. And so many people were looking at me, my parents, other patients, parents, nurses, physiotherapists, other patients. And I remember looking up to my right and my right arm was all kind of twisted beside my body and I looked under a gap beneath my elbow and I saw someone and this someone would change my life. His name was Ben. He had slipped over. Uh, he was in his early 30s. He'd slipped over mopping his girlfriend's floor, hit his head, broken his neck and he was a quadriplegic. Oh so he had God. no movement, no feeling from his chest down, little movement or feeling as you would know in his arms and his hands. So Ben's sitting in this really big chair and he's got his arms uh, they're, they're tied to the arm rests with elastic and he's moving his arms in and out an inch at a time, right? That was Ben's exercise for the day. Here I was lying on a bed feeling like my life was over, angry that I couldn't fly, sad that I couldn't walk, let alone go to the bathroom like like normal. And I looked up at Ben and Ben looked at me. Now, we never exchanged a word in all of this, but when I looked up at Ben in this terrible place in my life, feeling sorry for myself, drowning in pessimism and self-pity, when I looked up at Ben, I realized what he would have given for one chance at rolling mm. over. Yeah. And to be honest, I felt like the worst person on the face of the planet. And I had this really big guilt trip of how dare I. And we never said a word to each other. They put me back in the wheelchair and they took me back to the ward. But that was the beginning for me of understanding that the world wasn't against me, right? Adversity is a byproduct of breathing. It's an unavoidable element of the human experience. The world wasn't against me. I was merely experiencing what a lot of other people experience, albeit maybe a little bit worse, but you know, yeah. adversity is adversity. It's not a competition. So realizing that was actually the first step to normalizing. Ooh. And then that led to kind of a, okay, now I realize that no one's going to show up and make it go away for me because lots of people are in the same position. So what is it going to yeah. take for me to overcome? Well, that led to resilience. So then naturally I said, okay, well, how do we become resilient? Very process-based. That might be the pilot in me. And, and I realized as I asked myself, how was I going to become resilient? That that moment with Ben, as I replayed it over and over head in, you know, again in my head, as I, I thought and, and talked about it and and pondered on it and reflected on it, I realized that there were actually incredible resilience building tools hidden within that moment, even though we never exchanged yeah. a word, right? Yeah. But the more I dug into it, what was so powerful was the more I thought about it, the more tools I discovered. I started to focus on what I had left. So from my waist up, luckily, as opposed to what I'd lost from my waist down. And I started to focus and find gratitude in my ability to adapt, to find new ways to do old things, right? Yeah, I rolled yeah. over, Ben couldn't roll over. So that was the foundation, the commitment to mindset, the commitment to mental health, and ultimately an understanding of adversity and a commitment to resilience were the two big things that were like, okay, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to yeah. become... I say turbulence tough. I'm going to become turbulence tough and I'm going to use this storm to help me ride out tomorrow's storms because they're always going to come, right? They're always on the horizon. So that's what I did. And and thankfully, 
spinal cord injury recovery. Lots of people listening to your podcast will understand it's kind of a rehabilitation assisted lottery. So my numbers started to come out and we started to see a flicker of a, a toe, a twitch of a muscle and yeah. a little bit of sensation returned. And after a bunch of work, I was able to stand up for the first time and and then a few seconds of standing turned into 10 to 20 to a minute. And then I was able to shuffle in this big walking frame, mainly using upper yeah. body strength and the physiotherapist, amazing people were moving my legs for me. And then I graduated to a kind of slightly smaller walking frame and solo shuffling. And after almost six months, just over five months in hospital, I went home for further rehabilitation in my wheelchair, which was purple with white wheels and sparkly paint. So <laughs> I had a set of crutches with me focused on getting onto the crutches. Not only did I make it to crutches, but I made it to walking. And I know you can't see me right now, but the way I explain it is I walk like I've had a few too, too many Tennessee whiskeys, right? If you imagine yeah, someone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. But as incredible as you know the recovery was, there was the other side of the seesaw and that was, I still can't feel my feet. I can't feel the backs of my legs or where I sit. I've got no calf muscles, no glute muscles, no plantar flexion or push in my feet, uh, no roll control, no bladder and no bowels. All of that is gone. Yeah, yeah. We could talk about that all day, but incredible to be able to walk and, and ultimately, you know, get back to flying and, and do, albeit differently and, and a lot of adaption involved to, to pretty much live a pretty incredible life after it. I think it's so important Ryan, for for uh, providers to hear stories like this, uh, because it can become uh, it can become a bit of a grind sometimes to to particularly working in rehab, you know, and and uh, there's a tendency to get a little depressed about uh, the state of the world. But to hear, uh, and it it was the same thing when I was practicing. Is one patient come up to me and say, "Do you know what a difference you made?" and that alone, uh, you know, could fuel me for months. Uh, just that uh, the experience of the patient. I think we don't hear that enough, and so thank you for sharing all that. I know it's uh, uh, it's difficult, uh, even though you've you've practiced it. It's difficult still uh, to go through all of that and and deliver it. But it's so meaningful, and I I, I know that you took it even a step further, and you decided that. Not only were you going to uh, to focus on finding those tools, but you found a way to share those tools with others through through speaking and and uh, you know podcasts and whatever else. And how did that evolve? How did you go from where you were? Oh, you, you've you've started to identify tools that will uh, uh, help you get better. How did you make the transition to hey, I, I, I want to share this? There was a natural want to understand why why do I feel this way? Why am I down? Why am I not happy? What do I need? You know, what is it going to take? And I had some incredible help in hospital. Just people came out of the woodwork to help the kids who flew around the world. And I, I watched as I had a strong mind and still struggled. I watched people around me struggle beyond belief. And yeah. uh, I left the hospital and I continued through rehabilitation. I got back to flying an airplane with special brakes or modified brakes. And so I was now flying airplanes again, and uh, although I couldn't fly airliners or fly commercially, I got uh, the opportunity to completely retrain as an incomplete paraplegic commercial helicopter pilot, so I became a helicopter pilot. And I was flying the helicopter one day, I landed um, 
put the machine in the hangar and I hopped in my car and I went down the street to get some groceries for dinner. So normal life, finally finding a new way forward, a, a, a fresh chapter in my life. And my dad was with me at the time. I said, man, I said, my foot hurts, which was really weird because I can't feel my feet, right? So I took my shoe off and my shoe was full of blood. And Oof. this was in probably 2017, late 2017. And turns out I had a rock in my shoe and that rock, I wasn't aware oh, that it was. You didn't feel it. Yeah. So yeah. thankfully this didn't hurt, even though it's gruesome. But all day I sat in that helicopter with my feet vibrating on the floorboards and that rock caused a lot of damage. And I ended up in a burns unit for two weeks and then back in that purple wheelchair for two months. And oh my so even though I went back and uh, finished my commercial helicopter license, and even though I still fly and, and have plenty of aspirations in the aviation world, I knew that what I had to share, this high versus low, and, and ultimately these tools far outweighed my unwillingness to want to share it. So that was the commitment I made to move all the way to America and leave my family behind. I sold everything I owned except that little airplane that got me back into the sky and that airplane now lives with me uh, here in Tennessee. We fly it all the time. Um, I moved to America and I, I jumped on the keynote speaking circuit and, and I, I mean, speaking petrifies me like most people, but yeah, it was important to share the message you mentioned it there before like you guys everything that you do in your industry you change the world one patient at a time and that's not some corny cliche that's the truth and i think everyone needs some help you know we live in a world that's so fast-paced and stressful and yeah we all go 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 feeling like we need to show up and and do more to be more and 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 we're seeing a real effect on mental health and we're seeing a decline in in happiness and satisfaction and and joy and all of these kind of quality foundational kind of elements of life, I didn't even realize as I moved to America that my greatest lesson, as I call it, had still yet to be learned. And everyone wants to hear about the round the world flight story and the accident story in there, these big chapters of my life. And I was here in America on the keynote speaking circuit, sharing them, and I was still struggling. So I was kind of just in this, I had everything that society said I needed to be happy. I had an incredible recovery. I had this amazing yellow airplane. I had recently traveled to Graceland in Memphis, uh, the home of Elvis Presley, fell in love with that whole idea, bought a model pink Cadillac for $30 at the gift shop. Uh, They kind of force you through the gift shop in America. Every good... (laughs) Yes, they do. You can't get out until you go through the gift shop. So I bought a model pink Cadillac uh, and went on nine months later, as we tell the story, to buy the real thing. I actually purchased the typical kind of foreigner in America, the American dream. I spent all the money I had on a, a 19 foot long, two and a half ton, 1960 pink Cadillac. So I've got this pink Cadillac and this yellow airplane and and all these things where I, you know, that I, I thought I needed to be happy and I wasn't happy. And Good. the most important story of my life was I hopped in that car and I took it down the street one day. I just had to run some errands and do some jobs. And I pulled up at a gas station and saw an old man and this old man was staring at this pink Cadillac. And he, he was pretty old and he just had the biggest grin on his face. Like if he smiled any harder, his ears would have touched behind his head, right? This man was happy. And I, I looked up at him and I was stuck in my normal rut of work and whatever. And I happened to be driving this car, but I looked at him and I saw his smile and he waved at me and he walked away. And I got out of the Cadillac and I sat on the trunk of it as I filled the gas tank. And I thought to myself, I mean, every weekend we drove the car, people had come up to it. I've never seen a machine that evokes so much emotion. They'd want to take photos. People want to sit in the car, sit on the car. They ask questions. When was the car made? Oh, it was made in 1960. Do you work for Mary Kay is my favorite question. <laughs> no, I did not no, work no, for no. Mary Kay. But, so this car 
had all these incredible reactions and we saw it all the time. People would honk and scream from a moving vehicle. But this old man was different. He just kind of waved and then he smiled and he walked away. And as I sat there thinking about him, I realized that I had no idea what he was going through in his life. But I knew by definition that he was going through something because we all, all are. And I thought to myself, well, whether it's a sore back or his wife had given him a long job list or whether it's a recent loss of a loved one or a cancer diagnosis, it didn't matter because adversity, again, is not a competition. What mattered was that he was going through something. Again, we all are. That's so important. But when he looked at that pink Cadillac and when he smiled and when he thought about that car for the rest of that day, all of his worries, whatever they were, went away. They disappeared into irrelevancy just for a moment. And I thought, man, that's a powerful thing. Yeah. Because I'm a keynote speaker. I'm talking on resilience. I'm out there looking for the tools to help me. And this pink car, this idea of just smiling, is that really the answer? And it kind of took me on my own journey in life where I started to kind of prioritize the things that made me smile like a kid. And yeah. I'd have had a jet ski and <laughs> we'd go on adventures and I'd hang out with my friends. I had this airplane, this car. I've had all these incredible hobbies. I had had them my whole life, but I'd never thought about why I did them. I'd never really thought about the benefits of doing them. So what I was doing was I wasn't actually uh, doing anything new, but what I was doing was I was doing the same things with a new understanding of why I was doing them. So every time I struggled in my life, every time I was having a bad day, I decided to prioritize joy. I prioritized the things that made me smile. So if I was having a bad day, I might go and get a milkshake or I might go for a walk by the river or go and have a beer with a friend. And I did it with the understanding that this stuff actually mattered. We often see the things we do for ourselves as selfish when ultimately they're essential. So that understanding made me realize they were essential. That gave me permission to do them. That permission led to prioritization, which is ultimately action. That led to positive change. So just by shifting what I prioritized in my life and focusing on the things that gave me joy and made me happy, I became a much better person and I showed up better in in kind of all areas of my life and i'll say this because i can see you've got a thought i don't want anyone out there to believe regardless of what we're told sold or influenced or led to believe every day that there is a golden egg to make all your problems go away i don't care what five steps you get sold in a book or what online course there is just stop it like there is no golden egg to make your problems go away so instead of chasing that golden egg tirelessly uh like a kind of a greyhound at a racetrack i encourage people to stop looking for the ultimate solution and start stepping back, prioritizing yourself so you can show up better in the face of all those unavoidable challenges because they'll be there until the day that you die. So this whole idea of prioritizing joy, which I saw in my own life, gave me it was an incredible, it was a missing puzzle piece for me, right? And yeah, I saw yeah. an immense improvement in my mental health. That was something that we then took, tacked onto the end of the keynote for five minutes uh, at the end of every keynote. We asked this ridiculous question, what's your pink Cadillac? And we watched this conversation grow like wildfire. And that's what yeah. I will say. I'll 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 breathe for a second, but I'm very passionate about it. That is what yes. has led us to this point right now where we we talk about not just pink Cadillacs, but more importantly, prioritizing joy. Yes, I love that. And and what a uh what a a, a brilliant insight in you know, because we're all taught, and uh, we know from you know the even the lay literature that well, uh, you don't have control over what happens to you, but you can control how you respond to it. You can, you know, you can uh, you know accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. But the question that always comes up is how, 
you know, how do I make that happen? And and you have identified a, a, a toolkit that allows you to do that, and you're sharing it with others, and so that they get the idea that it can allow them to do it too. Is it is that how you see it? Am I am I yeah. on the right track here? Yeah, and I think like I had this massive kind of moment in my life where I realized finally what a speaker or a communicator or a leader does. They don't provide any anything new. They're, like we don't need new ways to solve old problems. That you know they're all out there for the taking. What we need is a new way to have the conversation. We need a way to have a work-life balance conversation without saying the words work-life balance. We need a clever viral way to get people to buy in to a solution or a tool so that they gather a new understanding that leads to permission, prioritization, and positive change, right? That, that's the whole point of it. The pink Cadillac for me, I fell into it because I actually had a real pink Cadillac. Yes. <laughs> but when we first started asking people, what's your pink Cadillac? The most important word was your, because I can say to you, hey, Robert, what's your pink Cadillac? And then all of a sudden you start talking about like your your days at the lake or the fact that you have an old car in your garage or you love collecting vintage surfboards or, and man, have we heard some weird ones, right? Like whatever, <laughs> I, whatever brings you joy might be my worst nightmare, right? I might hate skydiving. You might love skydiving. So by asking the question, we're able to allow every individual, whether it's somebody that works within a ward or within a hospital or within a team or whatever, we're, we're allowing, and this is a question that everyone can ask their people, we're allowing the conversation to be personalized to the individual. And that's a really, really hard thing to do. If you don't do it, you don't get relevancy. Absolutely. Yeah. The story is the buy-in for us. You know, we want to tell the story that are high and low. If I can turn around and tell you that the greatest resilience building tool I've ever discovered was not learned during a world record breaking expedition. It was not discovered in a spinal cord injury ward or in the process of learning to walk and fly again. It was parked in my driveway. Like it's so frustrating. For me. So frustrating. If I can tell you that, then that must, I hope, communicate the weight and the importance of, of this accessible, attainable change. You know, we just, what is the point of what we're doing here? Yeah. Just yes. living in general. We're, we just want to laugh. We want to have fun. We want to smile like a kid. There's a statistic from a study, uh, it was 12,000 business leaders and consumers. It's my favorite statistic. And that's coming from a man who doesn't really love too many statistics. And the, they looked at 12,000 people. They found that 45% had not felt true happiness in more than two years. 25% had lost an understanding. or didn't really know what it even meant to feel true happiness. And as soon as I saw that, saw that statistic, it just become the center point of everything that we do because that's just not good enough. Uh, that's just not good enough. We've lost the pure essence of life. And I don't know whether it's the rat race world we live in, the distractions of social media and and this fast-paced kind of, you know, your grass is always greener world. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. But we need to stop. We need to find balance. We need to step back so that we can show up better. And if there is any industry in this world that not only do I love speaking to most is, you know, that's the healthcare industry, but if there's any industry that needs it, we need all of you to show up better, to show up in, let's say, in your best form, because yes. that's what allows you to change the lives of every single patient in the same way that you changed my life. And, you know, if that means going for a walk on the beach or having a Friday night glass of wine, or if that means an organization gives a little bit more time off or incentivizes self-care then then we need to yeah. have the conversation and create the change 
because it matters. Yeah, you know, I I I love this. I I absolutely love what you're doing and what you're saying. And I, you know, my, my thoughts immediately went to uh, there. There's some a, a little bit of uh, backlash in the uh, nursing and, and medical community about don't talk to me about resilience. You need to change your business model. And and the problem is is that both are true, but. It, my bias is that you can't have um, uh, a healthy culture without mental health in each individual in that culture. They don't all have to get it right, but you have to have a, 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 a overwhelming majority of people who understand themselves well enough to be able to to modulate that with with the right tools. And uh, the way you deliver it, it, it becomes so simple uh, and so clear and, and and the tools right there in front of us. You know, we just hadn't recognized that that tool is sitting there waiting to be uh, uh, leveraged so that not only can we make our lives better, but we show up better for everyone in our lives. And that's the way real change happens. You know, it's a, it's a contagion, a positive contagion in this circumstance. And and so I really want to say I, I appreciate what you do. And my pink Cadillac uh, is having conversations like this with people like you. Uh, it's what brings me great joy. And, and I just want to thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous. Uh, I, I guess the, the last question, possibly, the last question that I want to <laughs> ask you is, where are you taking it from here? What's, uh, what's your... What's your life plan now? What are your goals? Where are you going? Well, I'm a very old 29. So <laughs> for me, I'm, I'm um, recently married and bought our first time and, you know, kind of living Congratulations. that. Congratulations. I appreciate that. Um, you know, we have all the thing, things planned that you plan at this age. You want to have a family and, and do all of that stuff. But never did I imagine I'd be in America and, and having a conversation about a pink car wearing a pink T-shirt. But uh, <laughs> and this is so important to me and I'm, I'm so fired up and inspired and motivated by the response that we get from this conversation so as a full-time keynote speaker that's what we do you know we we speak to all sorts of industries from all walks of life you know all different ages and and we have this this conversation we start the conversation we ask the question and we hopefully leave an impact as we walk out that door and and I'm excited to watch it grow. I want to see it grow into, you know, a program of accountability online that we can share within employees and workplaces. And I want to see weekly videos get dropped into inboxes just as a reminder to go and, and do those things throughout your week. And I want to see a shift to where your comment of, well, we don't really need resilience becomes a want and a desire to build resilience. You have to be proud of your ability to get back up. That yeah. is what makes great people yes. great. And if you, the only reason that you could justify a lack or or no need for resilience is if you don't truly understand adversity. Once we agree that it's a byproduct of breathing, then all of a sudden, if you're breathing, I got bad news. You better build resilience. So then the question yes. becomes: How? And you know, after all of the heartache and the things that I've gone through in my life, accessible, attainable change lies in the simplest of things. And you know. I'm excited to just be the person to have that conversation. We're writing a book called What's Your Pink Cadillac? Um, the Hidden Power in Our Hobbies, Interests, and Simple Pleasures. So we are taking this conversation out there. And I will say to everyone out there listening and, and to you, the only way we get to do this is through word of mouth. And, you know, there are so many people out there who need to have this conversation. And it's the hardest part is just, you know, kind of seeing the doors and getting through the door. And, and 
you know, so if you know of anyone or, you know, please reach out, please. We'd love yes. to help. Yes. We'd love to be there. And so, so tell us where, uh, where can people find you if they're interested in following along and, and, you know, getting this story from a number of angles and maybe uh, asking you to, to speak for them. How do they find you? Yeah, absolutely. So jump online. It's ryancampbell.co, and that's not .com. I always tell people we can't afford the .com yet, right? So, <laughs> so ryancampbell.co, or just email me directly, ryan at ryancampbell.co, any major speaker bureau uh, you can book and request us through. And, and please reach out and have the conversation. Jump on socials, Instagram and LinkedIn at Ryan Campbell speaking in. We share lots of content and we start the conversations on different platforms. So with that in mind, I, I thank you for having me on here today and, and give me a, a voice and an opportunity to talk about the Bing Cadillac. And well, the pleasure has been all mine. I owe a thank you to Pete uh, Simmons, uh, who is on our, our Banneretna board for introducing us. I, I, I understand why he was so excited about this introduction now. And uh, with that, we're going to wrap up for today, but uh, I'm going to follow along now. I'm going to watch this journey and I'm going to use those tools. And uh, thank you for providing me with the pink Cadillac today. Yeah, more than welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to The Groves Connection, your connection to the inside story on healthcare, featuring in-depth interviews with those who know. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review to keep the connection going and hit the subscribe button to be sure you never miss a beat. The Groves Connection is produced by Dr. Robert Groves. Original music, editing, and creative direction provided by Alden Groves. Production support, content guidance, courtesy of Janae Sharp and Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for listening. The professional ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and do not reflect those of any current or past employers. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Groves Connection.